The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Today's Solutionist Thinker started a digital agency in the days when you didn't put the words digital and agency into the same sentence. It was way back in 1999 when Rob Stokes started Quirk and he built it into one of the biggest agencies on the African continent until 2014 when he sold it to the London-listed global player WPP. Today, Rob Stokes is the chairman of Red and Yellow Creative School of Business, and he is our solutionist thinker. I recall sitting in front of a still very well-known lady who was the head of media at FMB, and I said to her, I can get your site to the top of Google. And she said, well, that doesn't sound very valuable at all. Please go away. <laughs> and three years later, I was back, not at her desk, um, but at her replacement's desk, and they were saying, can you get my site to the top of Google? You know, suddenly South Africa realized that this internet thing had potential as a business tool, and we were just absolutely right place at the right time, which I really won't claim as strategic brilliance, more persistence and, and doggedness of not giving up. I'm Bruce Whitfield, and you are listening to Solutionist Thinking, brought to you by RMB. 1999, digital was brand new. The internet was but a babe. We still had dial-up modems. What were you thinking? I definitely wasn't thinking very much. I was just digital, I was naive, I was unemployable, and those three things congregated in the forming of Quirk without any plan or vision other than the desire for an adventure. What made you unemployable? Before I, I started Quirk, I had a number of casual waitering jobs. I was a pizza delivery boy, I was a cashier at the spa, and uh, pretty much across all of them, I was pretty terrible at it. Uh, I'm not very good at admin and being very organized. Those things required some level of organization. I was quite good at selling wine and crayfish in my waitering days because I, I like building relationships with people and that's the best way to sell wine and crayfish and up your tips. I come from parents who are entrepreneurs, my dad in particular, sat around the dinner table every night listening to his stories. And my last waitering job, I quit on the spot, and I promised myself that I would never do that again. And then six weeks later, 18th, when strictly speaking, 19th of Feb, at about three in the morning, I realized I was going to run out of money, and I thought I'd better start a business because I can't get a job. So what was the vision then? I mean, you say there was no vision, there was no plan, but you must have gone into Quirk on day one with an idea, at least. No, look, I think at school, I started 17 businesses, none of them with any level of success. Well, maybe one, when Bon Jovi came to South Africa, which was kind of the first big band, I was at school, probably 16, I knew that concert would sell out, and I camped on the floor of the Bryanson Shopping Center, and I bought as many tickets as I could muster, and I sold them for about double the price, and that made some money. But apart from that, I was just used to finding ways to, I guess, buy something and sell something. In starting Quirk, I've always been into technology. I, I was very fortunate in that my mum would use a system, I think in the late 80s even, called Beltel, which was kind of the first internet banking before the internet. In the days of the um, the really, really slow dial-up modems, I mean, 56K was 100 times faster, I think, than but our first Beltel modem. But didn't Beltel work on some sort of ping Yeah, it used a similar technology. But really what it meant for me was I could set up a bulletin board in my home and connect to other people's bulletin board. You literally dial into their computer one at a time, and you could download games. And so I just got stuck into technology back then, and I've always liked it. I've always liked playing games. 
I was studying marketing at the time. Uh, when, I, when I started Quirk, I was in my third year of business science at UCT. But uh, that really affected nothing into it. Yeah, I, I knew there would be some way to make some money. I mean, to give some idea of my lack of planning, the name arrived into my head because I looked over at my cat and her name was Quirk and I thought, there's a name, it's short. And my first sale, uh, my first customer uh, was a good friend of mine, Liam, still a good friend of mine, and I sold him his computer on the 1st of March 1999. He'll never let me forget that about six months later, I employed him to build websites for our customers because we had evolved quite quickly to that. And uh, he used the same computer that I sold to him to build the websites, which he always found to be slightly ironic. I think in, in hindsight, as I'm maybe a bit more of an experienced person, I would only start with a plan now. But back then, it wasn't about the destination. It was about the journey. And, and I knew I'd figure it out somehow. It was much more important to me to have fun than to make money. And that's actually when we, my, my first real business partner, Craig Raw, and I, we really, I think, bonded quite subconsciously over that point. Craig met me. I had a long ginger ponytail, which was not attractive at all. He put his life savings into Quirk. He was very successful, a very successful engineer. And we just had a shared passion to forge our own path. But at some point, you grow up and you go, actually, we've built something quite substantial here. What was that point? I think we got our first round of semi-serious, which in hindsight wasn't that serious at all, was when I left university. I graduated in 2000. And I had got some momentum, but I mean, our turnover was in the thousands. And um, I, I knew that I wanted to at least give it a bash. And so kind of needed to grow up a bit because this was now becoming a full-time thing. But our real moment of, of proper grow up was about 2004, 2005. We'd been selling internet marketing services for four or five years to absolutely deaf ears, uh, very demoralizing. Um, I re was remembering the other day with a friend of mine how the three of us, him and, and myself and another chap, all entrepreneurs, went to Joburg for three weeks. We stayed in my parents' house, and uh, I had 100 meetings in that time, and I sold literally nothing. <laughs> And uh, were guy, you just bad at selling? I, or was possibly the, was the market because you could sell wine and you could sell yeah. seafood. Look, the ginger ponytail probably didn't help, but also I, I recall sitting in in front of a, a still very well known uh, lady who was the head of media at FMB, and I said, "I can get your site to the top of Google," and she said, "Well, that doesn't sound very valuable at all. Please go away." <laughs> and three who years later, person? I will not say her name, name. And shame. but three years later, I was back not at her desk, um, but at her replacements desk and they were saying can you get my site to the top of google you know suddenly south africa realized that this internet thing had potential as a business tool and we were just absolutely right place at the right time which i really won't claim as strategic brilliance more persistence and and doggedness of not giving up you must have hit points where you just went what are we doing some people are getting it the vast majority are not and that has got to be soul destroying. Yeah, look, I don't ever remember my soul being destroyed. I've probably repainted my history in my own head and with, with rosy colored goggles. But, you know, I do remember one time there were four of us in the business, I think all shareholders, and it was a Saturday and we were meeting up at the one chap's house to have a serious meeting because we were going to close the business the following Friday if we hadn't brought in some money. And I think we had one employee at the time. And that was a, a pretty sobering discussion. It was made very real by the fact that when we walked into his flat, there was this awful smell coming from the kitchen. I'll never forget this. And I said, Alistair, what is that smell? And he said, that's everything in my kitchen in one pot because that's what I've got left to eat. <laughs> 
and um, there were eggs in that pot, which made it extra weird. What was amazing, actually, was literally on the Thursday, a company called Keto, a kid's clothing company, who I told many years later the, the truth of the story, but they phoned us up, they bought a website, they saved our bacon by 24 hours. Seriously, I mean, was it that tight? Oh, absolutely. Look, I think it was only tight because we had a salary to pay. Craig and I had gone months and months without a salary, uh, probably longer. And that never really bothered me. I've never been that driven by the money. I like nice things, but it's not a focus of mine. And I'm happy to eat carrots for days on end. That does get a bit boring after a while. You only feel the burden of responsibility when there's other people involved as an entrepreneur. You grow this business past 2004. That's where you start taking it really seriously. Classic business. You start out of the bedroom, into the lounge, into the rest of the house, into an office. And suddenly Quirk is finding itself not only in Cape Town, but in Johannesburg and London as well. That's pretty big in a relatively short period of time. Look, the London thing, actually London and Johannesburg were not strategic decisions. Uh, Was anything ever? Uh, yeah, it became so. In about 2008, 2009, we were growing really quickly. By then, we were probably 50 to 100 people. And then we started really becoming quite serious about the business. And interestingly, then everything I'd learned in my business science degree 10 years earlier suddenly became relevant because, frankly, it's not that relevant in a 5 to 20-man business. But uh, I think one thing on entrepreneurs are good at, and also it can be a very bad thing, is seizing opportunity. So our Joburg office opened because um, one of our best staff in Cape Town wanted to move to Johannesburg to chase his girlfriend, now his wife. And we said to him, why don't you open an office there? And, and he did. And exactly the same thing happened with London. Uh, one of our member of staff moved there to chase a boyfriend, no longer a boyfriend or a husband. And we said the same thing to her. And um, in both cases, it gave us a bit of a foot in the door. It also created a whole world of problems that we haven't, hadn't anticipated. There's only one way to find those problems. And I think actually in hindsight, I hadn't thought about this until right now, but often young entrepreneurs ask me for advice. And, and the one piece of advice I always give, and I, I realize now that I, this is what I was doing, is just do something. Because I've fallen into the trap, interestingly, more in recent times of, of analyzing and preparing a business in my head for sometimes years on end. And on day one, everything is proven wrong. So there's no substitute for that day one. And, and I guess what we were doing at the time was just inventing as we go, seizing opportunities, turning down others, probably seizing more than we should have uh, and wasting a bit of resource. But we were learning. We were having fun. You know, nothing happens until you sell something. And then it all starts with learning about what you've sold and the customer that's bought it and how they've responded to it and then building your business off the back of that. Tell me about the time you met Martin Sorrell, Sir Martin Sorrell, now no longer at WPP, but starting up his own thing once again. So Martin actually has always been a bit of a business hero of mine. I've always heard comments about his personality, which I'm always not necessarily with the best, but um, I always admired what he did as an entrepreneur in, in buying an off-the-shelf company, Wire Plastics and Packaging, I think it was, and, and really going out on a buying spree. Is that what WPP stands for? I think for? so. Wire, Wire Plastics. plastics. I think they made um, uh, shopping baskets. And they were just a cash, listed cash shell that had some cash in it. This is as good as Warren Buffett buying whatever textile business called Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, I mean, I think the Sorrell's two skills were his financial genius around deal structuring, because effectively when he buys your business, he makes you pay for it. And then his, he spotted the opportunity for consolidation in, a, in an industry that is still quite fragmented, even though it is, it's being consolidated a lot. But, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it was all over the place. And he um, 
He brought some business best practice to often, which was a bit airy-fairy, and brought costs under control. It makes running a creative business in that space quite a challenge, but actually I think in aggregate he did the right thing. But yeah, my, my first meeting of him, I was so excited. It was 2007, I think. I was invited to WPP's first ever stream event in Mykonos in Greece. They'd rented out the whole of Club Mykonos in typical Sorrel style. I think they had Mykonos closes, I think maybe 1st of November, and the event was the 2nd and the 3rd of November. So we got it. The, he, I'm sure he picked it up cheap. <laughs> and I was, there was probably about 300 people there, about five or 10 not from WPP, of which I was one, which was amazingly exciting and intimidating at the same time. Sorrel was due to give a talk. I made sure that that was the thing I was sitting in the front row for, waiting for his business insights and his cricket analogies because we're both cricket fans. And he gave a great talk, and I went up to him afterwards, and I didn't actually get a chance to speak to him, and I was going to give a talk, and I said, why don't you come tomorrow at this time and come to my talk? And blow me down, so he did. And so I totally ruined my talk because I was too nervous. And then afterwards, he said to me, Quirk, you know, that name's familiar, but I'm, do we own you guys? And the cheeky ginger in me turned around and said, no, you can't afford us. I was obviously joking. Uh, he did not appreciate that humor at all and quickly turned around <laughs> and marched away from me. And I don't think he forgot that ever since. But seven years later, he did buy you. Seven years later, he did buy us. Uh, if I'm honest, I think he bought us more because he didn't want his competitors to buy us. But at the end of the day, we got the outcome we wanted. Did you ever relive that conversation or is it something you just didn't? No, I was not going to bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the day? I have told some of his colleagues who have universally told me that it was a mistake. Uh, Mm. Don't make those kind of jokes with Martin. Don't make jokes with Martin. You've moved on. You've solved the business of Quirk. You were there for a bit. Was it just a bit too organized, a bit too planny, a bit too grown up for you once, once um, you sold? Yeah. Uh, grown up maybe is not the right phrase I would choose. <laughs> but, you, you know, for me, I am just a, a free spirit and I'm allergic to structure more on principle and by instinct than anything else. I actually couldn't say anything bad about WPP or the people I worked with. They were actually all good people. It's a great business. I personally couldn't run a business the way they do it. But again, I think in aggregate across four or five hundred businesses, they do have the best way of managing themselves. But for me, I had become a bit disillusioned with uh, the agency model and how agencies sell what I believe to be the most important skill of the future, being creative thinking. And I think in hindsight, having thought about this a lot, I think uh, agencies tend to undervalue themselves and they often give away the creative thinking and then try and make money off the production, which by definition is almost entirely commoditized, Mm. when actually the thing that's of most value is the creative thinking. Look, after 15, 16, 17 years, whatever it was, I, I needed something new. I actually left without much intention, thought I would lie around a lot more than I did. And I slowly got it, started getting involved with Red and Yellow, and I really loved their mission. I loved what they were about. Was Red and Yellow always a business school? Because you are now the chairman of Red and Yellow. It's a creative school of business. We'll talk about the creative part of it. Was it always a business school? No. So, so Red and Yellow started in 1994. It was actually started by the founders of Ogilvy in South Africa, um, particularly two chaps, Brian Sawtrip and Alan Roth, uh, and with the, with the, 
the uh, the endorsement and the backing of Bob Wrightford uh, and and you know Ogilvy was Wrightford's soul trip and Macon and so he really started from the heart of that and Brian himself was in my opinion the best creative director South Africa has ever seen an absolute creative genius if you talk to any of the students from the 90s of of uh, red and yellow they will tell you that Brian was a tyrant who made them cry and turned them into the best creative people in the world. Um, hopefully we don't make our students cry anymore, but we still want to make them the best creative thinkers in the world. When I joined Red and Yellow, it was largely marketing and advertising and creativity. But as I said just now, I, I believe in a world that is increasingly filled with robots and increasingly going to be driven by artificial intelligence, which I don't think we've seen even close to the mm. beginning. I have asked myself what what does relevance look like in 25 years in business and there's a set of skills that are very unique to humans that robots won't have for a very very long time in my point of view creative thinking is the most important and in business creative thinking isn't about an ad campaign it's about innovation it's about empathy it's about understanding your customer and finding a new way to d- deliver them value and that is where b- value in business lies not just for the customer themselves but in terms of how you grow the value of a business and i think most business schools don't teach this at all you know they teach you the importance of finance and and law and hr and those are all very important things but at the end of the day if you can't look at a set of variables and come up with a unique and valuable a response or approach, I think your ability to grow over the long term, it's easy to hit it lucky once, but to be consistent on that is hard. So the ability to grow in the long term is hampered. And I had this massive realization with the team at Red and Yellow that what Red and Yellow is best at is not so much uh, marketing and advertising, but teaching business leaders to think creatively. And so we are really doubling down on that skill and building out what we believe is, is the business school of the future. Do you do all the boring stuff too? If you go into a place and you're not being taught about understanding the spreadsheet, understanding the balance sheet, Absolutely. understanding the statistics, understanding business modeling, yeah. all of the really hard stuff that the traditional business schools teach – well, you're not going to be able to manage. Then you can be as creative as you like, but you're going to become somebody's employee rather than an employer. Absolutely. So, look, we've got a long way to go in terms of building out the course program offering that we want. But, yes, we're very quickly branching beyond marketing advertising. In fact, we've launched an HR course, which is not something people expect of us. I'm not going to tell too much about what we're launching in the future. But suffice to say that companies in South Africa that are looking to send staff, they will find uh, very quickly the same types of courses that you would find at your traditional business schools, but with a very unique approach, mm. an approach that speaks to the the skills, these uniquely human skills that we believe are important. As an example, we've got a finance course that's very similar to a, a finance short course that you find in a business school, except we teach mindfulness. Now, there's no finance course in the country. In fact, I can't find one in the world that teaches mindfulness. And you yeah. ask yourself, why mindfulness? Well, the number one reason why people make mistakes in finance is cognitive biases. Humans are absolutely riddled with cognitive biases. We are, frankly, quite pathetic <laughs> in how we, we think we are logical and rational. And yet, really, if you get to the heart of it, we are anything but. When you're making big financial decisions that involve a lot of money, having a cognitive bias that you're not mindful of can really be an expensive mistake. As part of our course, we teach people the awarenesses of cognitive biases, particularly the important ones, optimism bias, confirmation bias, which everyone is racked with and yet chooses to ignore. And then we teach students to be mindful of those biases. And look, I'll say this, cognitive biases are so powerful that even enlightened mindfulness will only take you Mm. so far. 
but at least it takes you somewhere. We are not going to sit down and say humans are rational actors because they're not. In our finance course, we teach negotiation and persuasion, which are very uniquely human skills. And so really we're trying to take what is the best of business schools and add that future layer to it that will give students a set of skills beyond the the task-oriented skills that we're giving them. You would think people would be bashing down your door, but what you discovered earlier this year, to my surprise, and I think your own surprise, was that you make bursaries available, and although you had lots of applications, you weren't getting the right kind of application. So either you go, well, then we won't give away the bursaries if these guys aren't good enough for them or they're not grateful enough to accept our generosity. You simply came up with an alternative way of distributing information about the bursary. Yeah, so Renyelo, and actually one of the reasons I'm just so inspired to be a part of it, Renyelo's got something that they call their social promise, which is that 10% of their students won't have to pay for themselves. And, and Renyelo do it not primarily to be good people. I mean, that's a key reason. They actually do it because they believe that diversity is a critical part of creative thinking, and therefore we have to be diverse. And if you only uh, allow people who can afford to come in, in, then you will not be diverse. So so there's that 10% goal. In practice, it's actually almost 20%. And what broke my heart as someone who really believes in South Africa's desperate need for education is at the beginning of the year, there were a few slots on the degree program that went unplaced. So a degree started and like an airplane taking off with an empty seat. After a couple of weeks, uh, the Council for Higher Education is not going to let us put students on that program. And so there were these places that weren't taken up and it just absolutely breaks my heart. I think the number one problem in the world today is that people are not well educated. And by that, I don't mean book smart. I mean the ability to think critically about what's around them and and make decisions that are going to add value to their lives and to their communities. And so I figured as I'm a bit of a kind of a hobby economist. And so I really thought about this long and hard and realized that, you know, you could put it down to a communication problem. And yes, it was in certain respects, but it is a market failure because there are millions of South Africans wanting opportunities in education. And there we were giving them away and they weren't being taken up. So something popped into my head uh, on a run about six months ago, which was the idea to have a bursary lottery. I came home and uh, the .coza and the .com domains were available, which for me is always a sign. And so I purchased them. And Red and Yellow wanted to give away a whole bunch of bursaries. And uh, they wanted to do it quite quickly. And I thought, let's go. And so um, myself and a colleague, a guy called Jared Raisins, who runs a talent business called Trusted Talent, he whipped up a quick website for me with his team, uh, literally overnight. And... Um, it was amazing. Crickets for two days, and then we were picked up by a couple of websites, and then it's been an onslaught to the point where I've had to pay more to my hosting provider. Mm. Um, <laughs> we've just had, got more applications than I could possibly read, which is fulfilling on one hand, but actually very concerning and demoralizing on the other, because as part of the applications, uh, there's a free field form where you can just fill in kind of why I deserve this. And some of the stories, uh, Bruce, are absolutely heartbreaking. And there's no ways that we could help everyone. We've given away, I think, 32 bursaries in the first 10 days out of five or 600 applicants. But it comes down to the starfish principle as well. The man walks down the beach and there are 10,000 starfish washed up on the beach and picks one up and throws it into the ocean. And somebody says to him, why are you doing that? I'm helping the starfish. Well, you can't make a difference. I made a difference to that one and that one. Yeah, and look, and I, 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 if it just stops at that, then I'll be happy. But I have this weird feeling inside me that it's an opportunity to be a catalyst. There isn't a business intent behind it. Um, 
It might need to pay its hosting fees at some point. But um, no, I, I hope that other education providers are inspired by Red and Yellow's social promise because it's not easy to make that work financially. I tell you now, a team at Red and Yellow puts in an unbelievable amount of work. They are so dedicated to what they do. I mean, I just want to give you one example about this team. They give away these bursaries, they give away fees, but frankly, naively, we didn't think about the other costs. And we had a situation a few months back where students weren't coming to the school, and, and we asked why, and they couldn't afford to because of the bus strike, just eating up all the cash. And so this amazing team, once a month, have started what is called the Bursary Bri, where the whole staff complement red and yellow, uh, who are not big earners, they make and buy overpriced Bourivos rolls with a variety of highly competitive chili sauce contributions. And that just builds our bursary fund so that we can do things like pay for transport, pay for food, possibly accommodation where it's needed. It's creative thinking to the problem. Exactly. I think if Red and Yellow can make, you know, it's like 17 or 18% of its places available for free, if they can make that work financially, then other places can do 1%. If we could get one place on every course, there are thousands of education providers in South Africa offering thousands of courses. You know, we could potentially give, you know, another 100,000 education opportunities a year without a huge amount of extra cost on the system. And really all it's doing is allocating it to a group of people who are not academic achievers. Those people are going to get sponsors and, and scholarships and bursaries and whatnot. It's the other 95% of the market who sit underneath them. You know, I remember reading one of the motivations by a young lady who said she's literally tried everything. She's applied everywhere for every bursary you can possibly imagine, and she doesn't know what to do anymore. And her last line got me. She said, um, all I want to do is get a good job or build a small business and help to grow our country. And I can't guarantee her bursary because it's a lottery, but she certainly was in the in the shortlist. And I really hope she gets it because everything in her motivation for me seemed very sincere. She seemed like a good, smart person who frankly just doesn't have an opportunity. And I think if we can just start to build a group of those, they'll think critically. They'll make wise uh, decisions around who they vote into power and who they don't. And slowly but surely, we can start to turn around the country that we find ourselves in. His name is Rob Stokes. He is the chairman nowadays of Red and Yellow, the highly, as a young individual, disorganized founder, it's an incredible story, of Quirk way back in 1999, eventually sold that to WPP in 2014. Rob Stokes, the chairman of Red and Yellow. R&B, solutionist thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.